Hey, Crossings Podcast community. This week's teaching is called Jesus and Nissan Rogues and is part 17 in our series on the book of Luke. It was taught by Caleb Gilmore on February 18th, 2024. Thanks for listening. Good morning. Uh, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I bought a Nissan Rogue. Um, this is not our Nissan Rogue, it's a new one. Um, in no way at all is this our dream car, okay? We don't really have dream cars, but it, it wouldn't be a Nissan Rogue if we were picking. Uh, we'd driven a Buick Enclave for like six years that already had a bunch of miles on it before this purchase. Before that, we had a, 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 a Toyota 4Runner, so we don't have like a specific car or anything. We just found a good deal on this particular Nissan Rogue, and so we bought it. But then something started to happen. Maybe this has happened to you before. I started to see Nissan Rogues everywhere. Like every time I got on the road, at least two every time I drove to work. I passed them almost every day. It seemed like I parked next to one every time I parked. And I know that we did not make Nissan Rogues cool. Like I know that that, it's not a cool car. (laughs) But it felt like we had started some kind of trend around Knoxville. Chances are something like this has happened to everybody at some point. You hear a new vocabulary word, and then all of a sudden everything you read starts to use that word. Or you see a product marketed, and every time you walk into a supermarket, you start to see that thing on the shelves. Uh, Psychologists call this the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, also known as the frequency illusion. And the idea behind this is, is pretty simple. It's not that there are suddenly more Nissan Rogues on the road than there were before or more Baja Blasts in a Kroger. Um, What's happening is that you have been awakened in your attention span to something that now holds value to you. Once you start making car payments on something, apparently you start to pay more attention to that thing. But the opposite can actually happen as well. If you've ever come home from vacation for maybe more than a week and you start to notice this weird smell in your house, this foreign smell, only to realize after a couple of days that that's just how your house smells, uh, you just stop noticing that that's how your house smells because you've become attuned to it. You've become uh, almost blind to it. What's so crazy about uh, the, uh, the idea that we can become numb to something or that we can become awakened to something is that the world around us in in each of these different situations isn't changing at all, right? There are the same number of Nissan Rogues on the road or weird odors in your house, not mine, yours, (laughs) as there ever have been some things we just notice and some things we tune out. We've been studying the gospel of Luke together as a community now for 17 weeks. And I never really know what to think about, like how you think about this or how you feel if you've been here this entire time when we do these big, long studies of a biblical book. Does it get exhausting for you or is that just me? Uh, Because it's my job to pay attention to this, right? Like I notice this stuff. Is, Is there anything new happening when we open up these books that maybe we've heard before? Or do we already know all of this stuff? Is it kind of like a refresher's course? Or is it completely new? Are there things that we've never seen before? It's weird because we all come from different places when we gather here. 
these stories are so different for many of us because we have so many different experiences and unique perspectives, maybe even from the last time we studied this book, if we've read it. Some of us might be hearing this story for the hundredth time. For others, maybe we've never really heard these stories before, or maybe we have, we just didn't attach the same value to them as we might this morning. Maybe there's a story where Jesus drives a Nissan Rogue and I just never noticed before. <laughs> Nissan is not a sponsor of Crossings, by the way. <laughs> that would be nice. The, the question really is, what attention do we bring to these stories when we study them? What value do we assume or not assume even before we hear them? And on top of all of these kinds of questions, Today is the first Sunday of Lent. I triple checked. For those of you that don't know, I tried to start Advent a week early. <laughs> As Molly said last week, uh, Lent is this 40-day period of fasting and reflecting and preparing for Easter. Some of you may have grown up doing that. Some of you, this may be a fairly new practice. But what Lent really is, is an attention shifter. On Ash Wednesday this week, some of us showed up in the morning or in the evening to be reminded that from dust we came and to dust we will return. But the thing is, our mortality, our frailty, have always been there. Like a massive fleet of Nissan rogues. And we just normally don't pay attention to it. We may even distract ourselves from that very common reality that we share. Particularly today, the story of Jesus and the story of Jesus' death start to get a bit closer where we are in the narrative of Luke. And Jesus will begin today marching towards Jerusalem where he will inevitably meet his own death. It's not exactly a spoiler. Um, the foreshadowing of this has been happening throughout Luke. Um, an angel tells Mary early on in the book uh, his mother, that uh, this sword will pierce her own heart. Jesus himself has warned his disciples already twice that something like this is going to happen. And when we find Jesus this morning in the story that we're going to enter into, after teaching several parables to his followers, he drives this home really clearly a third time. This is in Luke chapter eight, uh, 18, verse 31. Luke says, then he took the 12 aside and said to them, look, we're going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the son of man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and he will be mocked and insulted and spat upon. And after they flogged him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise again. But they understood nothing about all these things. In fact, what he said was hidden from them. They did not grasp what he said. So for me, several things stand out. Uh, Jesus starts speaking about himself in the third person using this son of man language, which by the time of Jesus was pretty clear language to refer to the Messiah, this king of Israel that would come and restore the people. It goes all the way back to the time of Daniel. And he tells his followers that they're making their way to Jerusalem so that everything that was written in the prophets would be accomplished. 
And here's the first time that I think we have to be aware of our own Bader-Meinhof frequency illusion situation here. Because as Christians, if you go back and read the Old Testament prophets and you have some knowledge about Jesus, it's very easy to read the prophecies of the Hebrew Bible and, and clearly point out, oh, of course, this is about Jesus. Like this is, this is always gonna be about Jesus. But that's because we value the Jesus story already as followers of Jesus. And we see it everywhere in the Old Testament because it holds value for us. But the first hearers of these prophecies would not have thought about the Son of Man suffering and dying, nor would the Jews in the first century have associated the idea that their king, who would come and restore and make everything right again, be somehow subjected to humiliation and death. For us, this is just another Nissan Rogue on the highway that is littered with Nissan Rogues, and Jesus is driving. No one in Jesus' day would have believed that their Messiah, their King, would rule by dying. And whatever Jesus meant by fulfilling some of these prophecies, it's almost certainly not what his followers thought those prophecies would have meant. And even though he goes into some pretty specific detail about what kind of torture and death will occur, political betrayal, spitting, mocking, beating, ultimately death, Luke says that the meaning of these things was hidden from them. And, and that wording has always fascinated me. Hidden by whom? Was God hiding the meaning from them? Was it Jesus in the way that he said it? Was it the disciples themselves who couldn't just face the reality of it? Were they hiding it from themselves? How do you not understand the meaning of, I'm gonna die but come back to life, right? Like, it's pretty clear. I'd be shocked. <laughs> but how often do we miss plain, obvious meanings? Like, the things uh, that happen every day, the number of Nissan rogues on the road. How, how often do we miss the plainly obvious bad habits that we engage in, the self-destructive tendencies that we have, the things that trigger our anxiety, but we keep going back to them, the coping mechanisms that we deploy to distract ourselves. How often is the meaning hidden from us? The confused disciples, though, they, they just keep walking with Jesus until they get to this place called Jericho. Luke says, As he approached Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. When he, heard a, when he heard a crowd going by, he asked what was happening. And they told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Then he shouted, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who were in the front sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he shouted even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. So this is roadside scene one today in stories of Nissan rogues. Uh, there's a blind man who's unnamed in Luke's gospel, though Mark calls him Bartimaeus. And this man is begging. He, he's dependent on alms. He's dependent on the generosity of others in order to survive. And when he realizes that Jesus is passing by, he yells out this, son of David, have mercy on me. And this title, son of David, 
is literally true. Jesus is from David's family tree. He's a descendant of David, but it's also a title that would be given. A son of David is a fill-in for king, which may have been one of the reasons why people were trying to quiet him down. Uh, Perhaps they feared the political blowback of hailing Jesus as king when there might be so many Romans around. Maybe they were just bigoted towards this blind beggar. But whatever the case, they seem to be trying to protect Jesus from something. They, They seem to be trying to shield Jesus from another bothersome person looking for another miracle or someone who might be dangerous towards his status. He's an inconvenience that they're trying to protect him from. But Jesus does not need protecting. Jesus stood still and ordered the man to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, let me see again, Lord. Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has saved you. Immediately, he regained his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people who saw it praised God. It's strange, right, that Jesus asks this question, what do you want me to do for you? It seems pretty painfully obvious what this man might want. And when he names it, that he wants to receive his sight, Jesus comments that it is his faith that has saved him or restored him. This man has already announced his belief in Jesus as king. That's what gets everyone's attention, that he's the Messiah. It's it's this faith in this alternative upside-down kingdom that he believes Jesus is in charge of that has healed him. Jesus doesn't have to touch him. It just happens. And I've got to be honest, this miracle and a lot of these miracles are, are pretty discomforting to me when we consider that the passage before it was so focused on the suffering of Jesus, the fact that Jesus will die. Stories like this frequently have some kind of tagline in some places, if you just have enough faith, right? If you just have enough faith, you'll be healed. And yet the miraculous healing is paired with news about the miraculous death that Jesus will eventually succumb to. This is an amazing miracle for Bartimaeus and everybody who's there to witness it. But I'd like for everyone to get a miracle. Everyone in the crowd, everyone in Israel who has a family member who's blind or can't walk. Maybe the meaning of this miracle is hidden from me. Maybe Maybe the nature of all the miracles in the Gospels are hidden from us who came from ash and will return to ash. And what I'd really like to do, what's really safe, is to just keep this in the literary realm. This man's physical blindness is contrasted by his spiritual sight. This is a person who knows who Jesus is. And so his his physical inability is, is fixed by his ability to see plainly spiritually, that's really, that's a nice message, right? The disciples, while physically abled with sight, cannot see the deeper truths. That's really what's happening here, right? That's a nice escape mechanism. It feels like a cop-out though. 
a convenient avoidance of the fact that miracles seem random, capricious even, when we consider the many who have had faith but do not get the same story. Maybe as other stories go, the miracle is of faith which persists through unbelief. And that's the end of roadside story number one. Another follows. He, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through it. And a man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. So this is not the first time in Luke's gospel that we've met a tax collector. Uh, We know from other stories that Jesus often ate with them, associated with them, even had some who followed him. We've heard also about rich people in Luke. Usually it doesn't go well. So we have a story where we're kind of conflicted about how we might be supposed to feel about this guy. Is this a story that's gonna end well or is this a story that's gonna end poorly? Zacchaeus is likely not well-liked. We actually are gonna see that he's not well-liked on account of his profession. A tax collector in this time period is someone who fleeced his own people for profit. He worked, collaborated with the big government and yet he is interested in Jesus. And he's unable to see him, and so he climbs a tree, which I think is supposed to be really funny. I'd like to imagine Jeff Bezos climbing a tree. (laughs) And the story continues. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He's gone to be the guest of one who's a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, look, half of my possessions, Lord, I I give to the poor. And if I've defrauded anyone of anything, I'll pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. After he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. I think this too is a miracle, but of a different sort. What Zacchaeus actually does in this story, what what Jesus does for Zacchaeus, is to restore him to his community. Jesus knows his name. Whether it's through divine insight or due to Zacchaeus' reputation, he invites himself over. And Zacchaeus changes. He promises not only to restore the money he has overcharged his community, but to pay it back four times, well beyond any command in the Torah, the law of Moses, anything that would require this of him. And then Jesus says, that salvation, the same word used with the man who was blind, has come to this house because even someone like Zacchaeus, 
is a member of Abraham's family. He's a part of the Jewish community. It's another lost person in a long line of lost people that Lucas told us about that Jesus includes, that Jesus invites, that Jesus makes whole. A person considered lost by his friends and neighbors is restored and named and invited back in. And after this scene, Jesus turns to go back up to Jerusalem, back towards his death that he has just predicted. Maybe these stories are are too familiar for some of us, like the smell of our house. And we just don't notice how jarring and how unique they really are. Maybe we're so familiar with them, we just expect to see them pop up everywhere whenever we read stories about Jesus. Just another miracle healing story. Just another person that Jesus invited in. But both of these stories are of miraculous restoration and are bookended by ominous reminders of death just down the road. And this is what Lent is all about. The acknowledgement of mortality and human frailty wrapped up in a hope that understanding that reality might lead us to some kind of new life, some kind of restoration or healing or change. But it it doesn't work like a vending machine. (laughs) We don't get to put in our depressing Lenten reflection coins into the machine Uh, the the thoughts about death now, and then get the tasty treat of resurrection later. Maybe this Lenten season isn't about protecting God from the ways that God doesn't or does show up for us. Maybe Lent is about finding ways to restore people to community, finding new ways of seeing ourselves, God, each other, Maybe, maybe it's an acknowledgement of our shared condition and hoping for some kind of healing that we find a truer sense of community. Not one with answers or guarantees, but one that doesn't try to limit who can call out to God in what way or worry about what they'll say. One that doesn't grumble about who's getting recognized but seeks the image of God in everyone. As we reflect on these things over the next few weeks throughout the season of Lent, it's my hope, my prayer for us that we may be the kind of people who do not run from the harsh realities of our lives, nor the people who despair of hope. May we climb trees and break through crowds to be with each other as we try to see a bit better. We pray with me. God, we we acknowledge, especially in this time, our limits. We acknowledge, especially in this time, the ways in which you may seem absent And we hope that by acknowledging these things and not avoiding them, that we may be drawn in together 
into some kind of, of miracle, perhaps not the ones we're expecting or the ones we want the most, but the ones that, that you give to us. May we receive that through the gift of each other. May we receive it with the boldness and the courage and the hope that you give to us through the vision and the newness of life that we hope we receive in you. May we learn to do that better together. May we encourage each other together. And may we enter into that together. It's in your name we pray. Amen.